Hey guys, happy Thursday. Thank you for tuning in. Go ahead and give this podcast five stars and purchase a shirt always. Okay, so jumping in, we have Melanie Jew this week. She has taken her time to explore each aspect of the hockey world. She's played up until she graduated from Cornell University. After her college commencement, she started coaching at Pursuit of Excellence and moved on to coach at Lindenwood University. While she was in the heat of her coaching career, she received a phone call asking her to join the developing Chinese women's team. Now she plays professional women's hockey while she trains and preps herself for the 2022 Olympics. Listen to her talk about her experience each step of the way, getting back in hockey shape after taking seven years off off to coach, traveling the earth, playing the game she loves, her aspirations to provide guidance to developing hockey areas and developing hockey players. Melanie Jew is very, very eloquent with her words, and she will intrigue you with her answers on all of these questions. So I hope that you guys enjoy this interview. Here we go. Hey, buddy. What's up? Hi. What's going on? Not much. How are you? Doing pretty well. Just hanging out. Where are you right now? I feel like you're always moving around. Uh, in Vancouver right now. I haven't done a whole lot of moving since... Uh, this whole corona thing. Yeah, I feel that. Are you guys, like, the borders are still locked down, right? Yeah, we technically can come to you. You guys can't come up here. And what's the other thing? When we come back, we have to quarantine. Okay, gotcha. Which is kind of shitty, yeah. I've seen this so. thing on Instagram. Have you started a new, like, stick handling company thing? Uh, Empower Hockey, is that what you're talking about? I forget the name of it. I have to look. It's not new. Okay. But it's been around, I guess. What is it? Can you elaborate? It's, uh, it's just like a skills and um, development type thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to be actually hopefully launching here pretty soon, doing some like mentorship type stuff mm-hmm. while I'm over in Russia, and especially with the whole COVID thing. So we'll see how that goes kind of excited about it. Are you going to be mentoring in the way of, like, giving them guidance of where to play or what to do? A little bit of both. Like, it'll be if they have questions about college, that kind of stuff, getting them kind of prepared for that track, but also, like, skill development stuff. So, like, you know, whatever their goals are, doing video analysis with them, breaking down their games, figuring out where their strengths and weaknesses are, and then developing a package for them to sort of improve skills that they're weak on and then also develop the way that they think the game. So yeah. it's a lot of, like, one-on-one time with each player. Have yeah, you, do you already have people lined up? Um, I have one kid that I'm kind of working with, yeah, but it hasn't. I haven't, like, put it out there. I'm only probably going to have, like, maybe two or three kids at a time, max. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of work for each individual, so... Yeah, it's, um, it'll be, I don't know, I like the one-on-one stuff. I don't like, you know, like, doing the mass cookie cutter kind of stuff. Like, I really want to get, like, on a personal level with each of the kids, so. Well, that's a good leeway into your coaching career. So how, you, how have you been? What's going on with you? <laughs> I've been good. Tyler and I just moved to Pennsylvania and got a place together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But we'll be back in Tahoe's for the summer and stuff. He just transferred schools, and I got tired of doing long distance. So I asked my job right. if I could go remote, and they said yes. So Oh, awesome. I know. I was super pumped on that. That's super great. We got that going on. We're in North Carolina right now visiting his brother for the week. Yeah. So moving around. <laughs> I know that life. <laughs> yeah. Whereabouts in Pennsylvania are you guys? Wilkes-Barre. Oh, okay, yeah, nice. My, um, well, it's not, like, super close, but uh, my boyfriend's actually from Pittsburgh, original. Okay, gotcha. But he's not there anymore, right? No, he's in Ohio, but his family is still there, so. Gotcha, okay. So you've seen the state. You probably have seen more of it than we have. Yeah, I actually don't, like, I don't mind Pittsburgh, or I don't mind Pennsylvania. It's pretty nice. 
I really like it, and especially because California is still super locked down. And then we moved to Pennsylvania, and it's like, as long as you wear your mask, you can pretty much go anywhere and do anything. Is that a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's a good thing because I was starting to get really depressed. Like, I could do yeah. lockdown and, like, and like go work to home, work to home for right. a while. But after five months of it, I was like, okay, like, I need to do something else like I need to be able right. to play men's league hockey and stuff or at least go to the gyms right for sure no I totally get that it's like yeah it's a weird town it's a weird time to be like alive right now definitely sure. is <laughs> but, uh, yeah where's uh where's Tyler going now he's going to Wilkes University so he'll be okay, a junior cool. yeah feeling out nice. the whole transfer process right now and learning his new team Right, 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 right. Are they going to have a season? So I believe that it got pushed back to January. And okay. thank you for letting me interview you for my podcast. Of course, no problem. <laughs> Anything I can do to help. Did you end up getting your scrunchie? I did, yeah, I did. It, um, well, I was supposed to get it a lot sooner, but my boyfriend, because I had it sent to his place, right? Yeah. And I haven't actually uh, seen him in seven months. <laughs> oh my god, that's a long time. <laughs> yeah, the whole quarantine thing, or like the, the borders closing and everything thing is a tough go. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the first round of the scrunchies, I went to the post office and I asked the lady, I'm like, okay, how much do I need to like for postage to put on these? And she said 70 cents. So I sent like a bunch of them out to my friends and stuff and only yeah. a quarter of them got there. And then some oh, got really? there, and, like, people had to pay extra to get them, and then some, like, just were sent back, and, like, all of this craziness. So I was, like, that first Weird. order, half of them, I, like, don't even know if people got them. I, like, started calling people, and they'd be, like, oh, yeah, like, we had to pay, like, $5 at the post office and stuff. And I was, like, okay, well, I'm happy I did the first round to my friends and not to, like, actual yeah. paying customers. Oh, my God, that's crazy. I know. <laughs> Huh, yeah. The whole U.S. Post Office, Postal Service situation is crazy right now, too, so. Oh, it really is, yeah. Yeah, your country is on fire right now, literally and figuratively. I know. I just switched to UPS, because they're more reliable, and they give you tracking numbers, so at least I know where it's going. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I feel like it's like, if you're going to have a business, you have to have the tracking numbers. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) All right, so let's jump into this interview. All righty, let's do it. Perfect. So you grew up in Canada. Did you start playing out there? Yeah, so I started skating when I was three years old, and then I started playing hockey when I was five, I think. Yeah, so I started pretty early. But, yeah, I mean, I was just uh, skating around at, like, a local rink, and then there's a couple coaches, I guess, getting ready for the practice after. And I would just go to the rinks with my cousins for public skate. And uh, they went up to my aunt and was like, oh, hey, like, you know, uh, is that your daughter? And she's like, no, that's my niece. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. Like, she's a pretty good skater. Like, you know, is she interested in hockey or anything like that? And my aunt's like, uh, I don't know. Like, no idea. <laughs> so she, like, told my parents. And my mom and dad were like, well, we don't really have a whole lot of time because they were both – my dad is like a – independent business owner and then my mom was working at the bank so she's like well we don't have a whole lot of time so you know we won't have time to take her to practices and my aunt's like if she wants to do it like I will I'll take her to practices and stuff and that's kind of how it started so no one in your family had played before you just got approached um, by a coach no so a couple of my cousins had figure skated so we 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 were all kind of on the ice and then one of my older cousins um she played goalie she was a goalie Okay. So I actually, I wanted to be a goalie. Really? Uh, yeah, I still want to be a goalie. I, I'm a goalie in every other sport other than hockey. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> so then the first time, was it the first time you came to live in the States when you came to play for college? Yeah. So I had gone to the States a couple times for different tournaments throughout my career. But uh, the first time I fully lived in the States was when I went to Cornell. Was that difficult process, moving so far away from your family and everything? I don't think so. I mean, for me personally, 
I started traveling when I was like pretty young, going to tournaments by myself. I remember my first trip, I was like 13 years old. My mom dropped me off in the airport. She was super worried, but uh, I couldn't travel with the team because I had to stay home for school. And so I left a day later and I had to take a flight from Vancouver to Boston by myself at like 13 years old. And I was just like, all right, see you later. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) So I've I've always been pretty independent, I guess. And I never really get homesick at all. Uh, I think I've been pretty lucky in the way that like, I always know my family's going to be there and it's not like I'm missing anything. So that wasn't a hard transition at all. That's good. Yeah. I always wonder about that, especially like when people, even I feel like if you graduate college, you're a little bit older, but it would still freak me out to like go across the seas and play in Europe or something like that. I would be like so nervous, (laughs) but I haven't done a lot of traveling by myself. So I'm sure it's different for you because you've traveled a ton. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I've always adopted the mindset, and it might just be more of my personality, but it's just like, wherever you are, kind of be there. Yeah. And so that's always sort of stuck with me. I've never been like, oh, I wish I was somewhere else, because then it kind of robs you of your uh, ability to enjoy where you're at. I feel like that's the best way to live life, like really just soak in what's happening around you. Yeah, exactly. So it's been, I mean, it's been a crazy adventure, but I've really enjoyed everywhere I've been. And yeah, I've never really been homesick. So what do you think your favorite places that you've played at? Because you've played now in China and Russia and in the States and anywhere else? China, Russia, Finland. Finland, okay. Yeah, the States and Canada, that's where I've played. I, yeah, I played ball hockey in Slovakia. Yeah, uh, I don't know where I'd say my favorite place was. I think we get really great crowds in China um, with our protein. I would say my favorite rink would have to be Lina at Cornell near the end of our near the end of my career there, our senior year when we made a push to the NCAA Frozen Four. Like we had some really good fans, and I think that was a really good environment to sort of play in. And then the national championships in Minnesota that was incredible. We had I don't know I think we had almost close to 3,000 fans that game. I could be wrong, but that was an electric environment. And that would probably be my, like, top game I've ever played in, for sure. But in terms of countries, like, yeah, I don't know. I I think, again, each country has their pros and cons. Did you end up winning that game in Minnesota? We lost in triple overtime. Triple? Oh. seconds to go. (laughs) My senior year. I'm, like, still not over it. That is hard triple overtime. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it's a cool, it's a cool story in my time at Cornell. You know, my f- freshman year, we won four games and then culminating to making it to the national championship my senior year. Um, with like a pretty short roster that year because we had lost some kids to, um, Olympic training camps and injuries and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. Going from four wins my freshman year to the national championship game and almost winning a national title is uh, pretty cool. What do you think the big transition was? Like, how did you guys go from only winning four games to almost winning the whole thing? I think our coach did an unbelievable job. Uh, coach Dr. is probably one of the best coaches in the game from both a tactical perspective but also from a human level. You know, I was getting recruited – quite heavily by a lot of other schools and he really sold me on what the program could be and I wanted to be I've always been a person that likes to build things and be a part of um, like something new and being able to kind of put my stamp on it and I think he did a really good job of instilling that belief that you know well we're gonna get there it's gonna take a while but we're gonna get there and I think putting that culture in his freshman class which is us we really carried that through for the next, you know, three years or four years that we were there. And every year we kept getting better talent, you know, with that buy-in and we just had a lot of fun. So I think it was like a combination of a lot of different aspects, but it all started with him. And now Cornell is just a dynasty. That's so awesome. That's yeah. Cool. At what age do you think kids should start to look at colleges and kind of commit to where they're going to go? I think that... I, the way that, uh, okay, so we're going to get into this. Um, <laughs> I think kids need to be informed early, but 
but I also think kids should still just be kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I was very fortunate that I grew up in a time where as a 13, 14 year old, I was like, okay, my, my parents, you know, were like, okay, like, what are you going to do with hockey? Where are you going to go? You can use this as a tool to get into a good school. And I was lucky that I sort of had an idea. I was like, okay, I want to go, I want to go Ivy for the education. And I didn't really consider a whole lot of other things, but uh, I never felt pressured or like I had to play to get a scholarship. I played to have fun and I happened to get a scholarship or an opportunity to play. So I didn't have that pressure that kids have now where it's like, I got to sign now. Otherwise, you know, my spot's going to get taken by another kid. I didn't decide until literally May of my senior year, which you don't hear of now. You hear of kids signing in the 8th, ninth, 10th grade. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they changed the rules recently to kind of stop that from happening. But, and kids got to be kids. They have to have their goals and they have, you know, know what they want. And I think it's great to have a lot of research done beforehand about what kind of school they want to go to or what kind of campus that they sort of feel like having. But those things are going to change. So I think kind of having a growth mindset and an open ability to play around with all those things and, you know, still work really hard and then make your, like make a conscious, smart decision when you're like in the 10th or 11th grade, I think is probably the way to go. Cause I didn't know who I was at 13, man. If I had to decide a school where I was going like for the next eight years of my life, cause you have high school and then university, like you change so much in those four years from third, yeah, 14 to 18 as a person. So, you know, I, that's a tough, I know that the, the way that the game is going is that it's trending to kids committing earlier, but I also think that it's going to leave the door open for a lot of late bloomers to kind of pick up spots where people either decide that they don't want to go anymore or they transfer or whatever. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question at all. but uh. No, I think it does because, I don't know, I've talked to a couple of the girls from Naha and they all commit very early. And then you talk to some girls from the club programs where they don't necessarily have that same college counselor that's focused on sports where, like, it'd just be their regular college counselor that's more, like, the regular pathway for, you know, academics instead of athletics where they, like, just start looking at schools their junior. So I've heard a lot of different things, and I always wonder, like, well, who's getting the leg up? These people that commit earlier and then they don't have to worry about the decision the rest of the time that they're playing or the people that, like, play and can push themselves harder because they're still looking to impress and everything. I think of it in different ways. I think it depends, like, from a from a high school coach's perspective, from a player's perspective, and from, a, like, a college coach perspective. And it depends on the type of college that you're coaching at as well, right? So, for example, like, schools like Wisconsin and Minnesota, they have the luxury of being able to pick the best kids early because, like, they're unreal schools. Whereas, you know, programs like Lindenwood, where I coach, we had to – be a little bit more selective about our choices. We could wait a little bit longer to see how kids developed, you know, and hopefully maybe pick a kid that was passed over early, but developed later. And I think that's going to start happening a lot more as well. So, you know, uh, I think a lot of those newer programs are actually may benefit from kids committing early because the kids that develop later, in my opinion, you know, they almost want it a little bit more. How was it? coaching at Lindenwood. So they did the transfer from a D3 program to a D1 program. Were you there for that, or did that happen before you started coaching? That happened before I started. So I okay. I think it was Division One two years before, maybe two or three years before I got there. Okay. Yeah, so they had already fully made the transition Division One, But, uh, yeah, I mean, I had a great time coaching there. Again, I love building things, and I love – Seeing potential, like if you if you see potential and you can give it an opportunity, then anything can happen. And uh, I think we did that at Lindenwood while I was there. You know, we upset some teams. We beat Bemidji. We beat uh, Northeastern. We beat University of North Dakota. We beat, we beat some pretty big big name teams with our you know ragtag squad of kids. And I think we did a really good job of of building that program from the ground up. 
And you coached there for three years, right? For three years, yes. Yeah. Okay. So what, because before that you coached at Pursuit of Excellence. So in your view, what did you have to do to transition from coaching high school to college? Was there a big jump or did you just stay with the same? I think there's a transition from high school to college would be from less focus on development and more focus on winning. You're still developing, but in high school, like I'm trying to prepare kids to be ready to play college hockey and step in and like make a difference right away um, when they get to college and also be able to play whatever system and be in whatever role that they're given when they get to college. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I'm coaching college, those kids, the kids that we get are what we get and we have four years to get the best out of them but we also have to win games. Whereas in um, high school, it was like, we're going to win games because we're developing, not because I'm trying to focus on winning games. So I would say that mentality flips a little bit when you when you switch levels. Did you like, what did you like better, being able to develop players or being able to focus on the game? I love the high school age group. Yeah. I, I love developing kids. I love helping them get to where they think that they can get and then taking them even further than that. I think the human the human development from, you know, 13 to 18 is incredible and that's something that I really like. I always say that like I don't I don't like really consider myself a coach so much as I like to teach and yeah, I think that's like the high school age group. You know, you can teach them so much about hockey and life and how to be a good person and how to con- how to carry themselves professionally and the developmental side, you know, I think unlocking the potential for somebody and then seeing them just absolutely flourish is one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done. And I, I know that that's like what I love to do. Are there players that you still stay in contact with that you've coached? Oh, yeah. Like a lot of the kids that I coached at Pursuit of Excellence and even at Lindenwood, you know, they'll reach out from time to time or I'll reach out to them if I see them you know, hit a milestone on Instagram or whatever. But, uh, you know, I have kids texting me sometimes. They're like, hey, you know, like, what what do I do with visa stuff? Or, you know, can you help me open a bank account? Or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's honestly the best part of coaching. That's the greatest reward is when those kids know that even though, like, you know, I might not have seen them for a couple of years or whatever, that they still have an absolute open door that they can reach out to me for anything. And I'll, I'll be there for them. So... Now that you're playing professionals and some of the girls that you coached at Lindenwood would be of the age to play professional, have you gotten the chance to play against any of them? I actually did. Uh, we played a scrimmage at least my first year when I was playing pro. We went to Alaska and there was a recent grad from Lindenwood that was playing on the team that we were uh, scrimmaging. And so that was pretty cool. <laughs> and it was neat. Like even playing in the CWHL, there's a bunch of kids there that I had either coached against or had coached uh with or or I had coached a little bit um playing and you know it's it's always kind of neat just being on the ice and being like whoa this is a this is a weird switch (laughs) (laughs) I bet it is and it's got to be crazy because you know them so well you're like oh I know what I can do to get around them Yeah, it's always, you know, it's always fun, though, because I'll, even on the bench, like, I never lose that, um, like, I want them to do well. So mm-hmm. even if they do something on the ice and I'm on the bench on the opposing team, I'll just be like, oh, like, hey, that was really good, or that was awesome, and it's always fun to chat with them after the games and, and you know, encourage them a little bit, so it's fun. What were the games like for you playing D1? Was it a big jump from where you were before that, or do you think it was a bigger jump from you to play D1 to the professional level? I would say high school to D1 for me was a bit of a jump in terms of, like, game management. I was pretty raw. Like, I didn't I didn't understand, like, how to actually play hockey. Like, I played, like, you know, minor hockey, like, you just go, and if you're good, then you can, like, do whatever you want. You don't actually, like, obviously you have a system and whatever, but you don't think about the game in a way that's, like, tactical Mm -hmm. I guess and even in college like it took me a hot minute to like figure that out where it's like okay like you can't just throw a puck into this space you know because it suits you or whatever like you actually have to think about like your turnovers or like 
the soft areas of the ice or, you know, your timing into the zone and all that kind of stuff. And like, I, I didn't have an idea about any of that stuff going uh, to college. And it took me a while to, to really nail that down and play within a system and not just be everywhere and mm-hmm. skate all the way or all, all over the ice because I could. So I would say that was the bigger jump. I think I had the advantage of coaching for seven years before I played pro. So I actually thought the game really well when I came back into playing after not playing for seven years. Yeah, I have um, so many questions about that. <laughs> like, how do you take that time off and then just jump back into playing pro? Or were you really good about staying on top of being on top of your fitness when you were coaching? Or, yeah, explain um, all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm fortunate to be, like, just an active person. So I never got, like, super fat or, like, really out of shape. Like, I, you know, I was always playing soccer or I was climbing a lot or hiking or playing squash. And so I was always, like, staying pretty active. And I think, again, like I said, I think coaching really helped, especially with the mentorship that I had from Scott Spencer, who I coached with for, oh, God, like six, six or seven years, yeah. And learning to see the game the way that he sees the game, I think, really helped me be able to kind of step back and not, or jump back into playing and not be, like, 50 steps behind. I was maybe just, like, from a physical standpoint, I was a little bit slower, but my brain could keep up or I could think better um, and not put myself in positions where, you know, I would be exposing my lack of fitness. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I was pretty lucky that it sort of set the stage. And I always, and it's funny, like you put it into the universe, you know, I, when I graduated in 2006 from Cornell, I was like, I'm going to go to China. I'm going to start a hockey school. I'm going to, you know, start over there. It's developing. Like it's going to be a thing, blah, 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 all this stuff. And I always joked with like everyone. I was like, oh yeah, you know, like I'm just preparing for China, like hockey China to call me, like blah, blah, blah. Like as a joke, like not ever serious, but it was like just in the back of my head. And then, you know, 2017 rolls around and I get a call and I'm like, <laughs> like, this is, this is real. This is happening. <laughs> like, holy cow. So yeah, it's, uh, I was, I was lucky, honestly, that I just, uh, kind of stayed with the game and, and stayed in shape. In good enough shape. So it wasn't like you had the decision and you started doing the research looking for a team. They called you and found you. Yeah, pretty much. I, it was not even on my radar. I was applying for head coaching jobs, um, you know, in the in U Sport and also in the NCAA and all that kind of stuff. Just coaching is like definitely what I want to do and where I want to go with my career. And playing was pretty much not even on the radar at all but uh you know when you get an opportunity to potentially play pro hockey and then potentially maybe represent a country in the olympics like that's pretty hard to pass up uh, yeah have you gotten a chance to play in the olympics no, no. no not yet okay So I don't know if you'll actually know the answer to this, but Tyler and I were just talking about it before we jumped on this phone call because the last Olympics, they made the big change. And I think, I think it was that any professional hockey players couldn't play in the Olympics. So they had like all the USHL players and like a lot of the younger players and none of the like NHL players in it. I was wondering how that is with the girls and if it's the similar rules. So it wasn't the Olympic Committee that decided that. It was the NHL that stopped their players from playing at the at previous okay. Olympics. But I think they're trying to work that out again, and hopefully we'll see them back at the next Olympics. But, yeah, the last one in, in uh, Pyeongchang in Korea there was uh, non-NHL players. Okay, um, gotcha. Yeah. So that doesn't affect the women's side at all. And did you want to play professional in the States? Or do you like playing overseas better? Because you're in Russia right now, right? Yeah. I ever set it out in my mind to be like, I wanted to be a professional women's hockey player. Mostly because when I was growing up, it wasn't sustainable. You know, and from a logical mindset, as much as you love the game, at some point you have to, you know, put the skates down, put the stick down, and, you know, earn a living. 
And um, that was, you know, 20 or 2006. There wasn't really a league. They had a NWA, they had a version of an NWHL, I believe. And it just, you know, it didn't pay enough to make it, I guess. And there wasn't a team in a city that I lived in. So it wasn't like a convenience thing. But now with the PWHPA and, and all the things that they're trying to do to make a, a league where, you know, you can truly be a professional women's hockey player, hopefully, you know, if the opportunity came around to play in the States, that would be awesome. I, I, again, I think I am very fortunate to, to be in a position to play for a team in China and to make a living wage where I don't have to work during the season and all that kind of stuff. So I can't complain. And, and the thing for me, too, is about growing the game, right? And I think being a Chinese player and being able to do that in China for a Chinese team is, is really important to me. And giving, you know, those young girls in China the somebody to sort of look up to and be a role model for those kids to be like, hey, you know, you can, you can play hockey, too. Because it is a very patriarchal society over there. And you were playing kind of the player-coach role, correct? Were you helping uh, for the first, mm-hmm. Yeah, for the first year. So our rules have kind of changed over the last three seasons as our team has sort of evolved. But uh, the first year we go, we went over there with the knowledge that, you know, we're going to pass on whatever skills that we have to the, the Chinese players that are there on our roster. So we would go over and, you know, we would run our own practices and then the last 15, 20 minutes we would have for the Chinese players, we would just develop, do some skill development stuff. So I would, you know, I'd get to coach a little bit as well. And that was, it was honestly the best of both worlds. It was great. So do you think you'll just keep playing professional as long as possible and then jump back into coaching? No, I think I have a pretty solid goal in mind. I think I'm going to try to play until 2022 and uh, see where the chips fall from there and then get back into coaching. Again, like, I like hockey. I like playing and I like being on the team and all those sorts of things, but I love developing kids. I love seeing the potential in people that they might not know that they have and just going on a journey together to, like, unlock that and unleash it. And it's just... That is, like, the greatest thing in the world to me. Do you have one player in mind that you've just really enjoyed watching develop? I've had a... You know what? Honestly, I've had a couple. And I think there's definitely five or six players that come to mind when you ask that question. That mm-hmm. I'm just like, holy cow. Like, I am so proud of the people that they have become, first and foremost. And not, not even, you know, talking about hockey accomplishments. And then secondary, like how far they've come in their careers, just seeing them go from, you know, 13, 14 year old kids to being captains on their team or assistant captains or, you know, becoming nurses and, and those sorts of things. And it's, that's, it's so cool to me. And then one of my teammate, current teammates, I guess, watching her go from, you know, being a pretty decent player with a really good skill set to being, you know, CWHL all-star, WHL all-star, and seeing how far she's taken her game in just two, three years under a little bit of guidance has been has been really rewarding. And I have to ask, why 2022? Why is that your like goal year? That's the uh, that's the Beijing Olympics. That's okay, it's like yeah, I should have <laughs> thought about that. <laughs> yeah, so that's like that's that's the reason that I kind of came back on board and. Uh, you know, I've played around it with it in my head a little bit. Like, it'd be kind of cool to go to Australia and play a little bit and develop the game down there and do those sorts of things. But, you know, we'll have to have discussions. Uh, I'll have to have a discussion with Eric and see how he feels about that. Um, you know, because, like, obviously, you want to start a family, you want to have a kid, and all those sorts of things and all that kind of stuff uh, takes time, so. Okay, since you brought it up, because... I've been thinking about this a lot, and I wanted to hopefully get one of the founders of, like, one of the women's pro teams on to talk about it, but it's a controversy that only women have to face and not the men, sadly, (laughs) but I wonder what that's like in that decision to, like, if you do become a professional sports athlete in any of the women's sports, how difficult is that to, like, make that decision of, like, okay, I'm going to start a family. Will I be able to get back in shape? Will I be able to, like, 
you know, get my body back into that athletic, what it was before. That's such a scary thought. Yeah, I think it's definitely doable, right? I mean, you saw uh, Megan Mickelson on Team Canada. She had a kid and came back. The Lamoureux twins just had kids, and they're coming back. I think, you know, obviously Serena Williams is a great example. She had a kid and Mm -hmm. absolutely killing it. So I think... There is definitely a stigma around female athletes and choosing, quote-unquote, family over their sports. And it is a very unique problem just for women. But again, I don't think it should be something that stops you. Obviously, it's every person has their own choice, and and whatever they want to do is the way to do it. But if you want to have a kid midway, you know, through your career and then keep playing, like, do it. All the power to you. I don't think that organizations or coaches should stop you from doing that. That's, you know, yeah, I think that, that I think that's super empowering to see more female athletes doing that. It definitely yeah. is. And I just wonder, like, how it works. Like, if you take nine months off and then however long it takes you to get back in shape, like, what happens to your spot during that time? How are they going to do, like, a maternity leave? All of those questions make me so curious. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's definitely an interesting thing to have to navigate. I mean, like, I can't remember what happened to Serena Williams when she decided to have a kid, but I think she had to work her way back up the rankings, which, again, like, you know, is that the right way to go about it or the wrong way to go about it? Excuse me. I have no idea. I don't, I don't know tennis well enough, so I can't speak on that. But obviously, I think if you, in the hockey world, if you have a kid, like, if you can still play, like, then it shouldn't be held against you. Yeah, I agree. How'd you like playing in Finland? I don't even um, know anything a, about Finland. <laughs> <laughs> we had a couple of exhibition games there during the season last year. And we went, oh God, when did we go? I think we went in December. I want to say we went in December. I can't, I can't fully remember. But it was dark for like 20 hours of the day. So, like, we had sunlight for four hours, and those four hours were, like, usually when we were at practice. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I, honestly, I really like Finland. I like the people in Finland. I've got a lot of Finnish friends, and they're, you know, just awesome. So I really enjoyed playing there for the, you know, two or three weeks that we were there. And they've got saunas everywhere, which is nice. (laughs) That is nice. Let's see, where else have you played? You said Canada and U.S., so it does have on here that you're playing for Russia. Are you playing in Russia or no? Yeah, so our Chinese team is playing in a Russian league. So when the CWHS oh, okay. folded, gotcha. yeah, we went in over to Russia. So I played in Russia the last two seasons, or sorry, the last season, and then this upcoming season will be in Russia again. I enjoyed Russia. I mean, like, the food there was really good. The people were all really nice and accommodating. I love St. Petersburg. It was super... What do you call it? It was very, like, European. It had a lot of a very European feel, which was kind of cool. And then I also really liked uh, Yekaterinburg. It was really, really pretty. I think it's, like, the third largest city in Russia. And, yeah, it was just really fun to tour around because it, it's not a place that was on my bucket list to travel. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of glad I got the opportunity to go over there with hockey. So are you guys driving to all of your games, or are you flying? Like, what is the distance to this? Yeah, we're flying. So we'll fly. So we'll be in Russia for, like, a month and a half playing, you know, two or three teams. And then we'll go back to China, and those teams will come and play us. And, yeah, it's, you know, when we're in Russia, if there are a couple teams, like, near Moscow, then we'll we'll bust to those games. But for the most part in Russia, it's a flight. Okay. Yeah. For a whole month. Wow. So do you guys, like, they set you up with a rink to practice at and everything, and you just kind of make that your home rink for a month? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like, we'll we'll go to, like, two or three different teams. So we'll be at each place for, like, five to five days, five to ten days, depending on, you know, our schedule. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, during that time, you know, our equipment manager is honestly, I think, the best equipment manager in women's sports. And she does a really good job of making wherever we are feel like home. And it, yeah, she's she's really good at her job. That's awesome. And do you have a dream 
program that you would want to go back and coach? I kind of want to start my own, honestly. I'd love to be able to kind of create what I envision the perfect development program to be like, and it's not just hockey. Like, I want I want to create a program where kids are basically just freak athletes, and they play a bunch of different sports, but all those sports are coached towards learning how to play hockey or taking skills that'll translate to hockey. So, for example, like, you know, we would play soccer in the fall or whatever, but I would coach that soccer team with the thought process of, like, okay, how does this translate to hockey? So they're learning all the skills to play or soccer, blah, 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 all that stuff, but it's all translatable to hockey type stuff. And, you know, in the winter we'd play basketball or blah, 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 whatever, and then we'd still be playing hockey at the same time, but the intensities would shift depending on what part of the year we were at. Okay. So have you thought about the format for that? Would it be like you would just have the amount of girls for a hockey team or would you do like a boarding school format and then you would be like an assistant coach or head coach for the soccer team and basketball and then like the main thing would be hockey? I would just have a hockey team. I would have like 23 kids or whatever Uh um, on a hockey team. I would take them for the year, and then we would, like, sign up to play for the local whatever soccer league, and then do that, and then do hockey, and then, you know, play basketball, and then do hockey, and then, like, do tennis, and then do hockey, you know, like, so that they're getting, they're becoming well-rounded athletes, because I think that's really, really important, especially at the younger age group, Mm -hmm. but, you know, they're still fulfilling that hockey um, on-ice component as well. So it's it's still a very like rough plan, but that would be that's that's the dream. I like it. That's awesome. Yeah. That would be really cool. No, I do think it's important cuz I think kids just get burnt out and you get like too hyper focused on one sport. For sure. I think it's too early. I mean, again, I played both I played two sports in college. And again, I don't think that's a normal thing. I was, again, really lucky with the people that I was surrounded with that they let me do that. But I think that has really added to the longevity of my career, is being athletic in different areas. Okay. What other sport did you play in college? I played field hockey at Cornell. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I. Uh, and you were a goalie? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jeez, I just interviewed my friend Skylar Starbeck because she played college field hockey. And I was asking her, like, if they had a professional team, would you work in that? Because she works for or used to work for the St. Louis Blues. Oh, cool. Yeah. I always wonder, you think they'll ever start a professional field hockey team? Or do you think it has to grow more of the sport? So that field hockey is actually huge in Europe. Like, it's or huge internationally. I, won't, I don't even want to just say Europe. It's huge internationally. Yeah. So I just don't think it's caught on in, in North America because there's just so many other sports that have taken precedent. But uh, there are professional women's leagues, you know, in Belgium, Australia, the Netherlands, Chile, um, all over the world. So yeah. I actually don't know if this is true or not, but I'm going to ask. Isn't it yeah, that, yeah. like... Isn't it bigger for guys to play field hockey in other countries where, like, here, like, guys do not. It's just girls. Yeah, yeah. Field hockey is, like, a really big sport internationally. You know, like, there are a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of men that play in the world. And it's, like, it's so fun to watch. It is really, like, all the power to those guys, man. I would not stand in front of those balls. Those those guys can rip, rip balls. <laughs> Yeah, the craziest freak accident I've ever seen was at my high school. I was watching one of the field hockey games, and the girl lifted the ball too high that it hit another girl, like, in the temple, and she had to get airlifted from the game. Yeah, man, like, it's, like, a real thing. It's, like, it's crazy, but, uh, yeah. You never thought about going into coaching for that? I, I coached field hockey a little bit in the minor levels when I was, like, in between summer, or when I would be home for spring in between years at Cornell. But I don't think, I, I don't know, I just never, never stuck with me quite as much as hockey did, I guess. I enjoyed it, I really did, but I didn't, uh, it wasn't as much as hockey. Gotcha. So you said your favorite game was the Minnesota one, your favorite ranks. So you guys get a lot of fans in China? Oh, yeah, we have, like, I think we average maybe 3,000 fans a game. Are you serious? 
Yeah, like, we get quite a few people. Our team has done a, a really good job of promoting our team. And, again, I think they're trying to get that hype for that for the Olympics and, and educating the fans about how hockey's played mm-hmm. because it's, it is a brand-new sport over there. So, you know, like, the first couple of games we played, you know, the other team would shoot the puck down to the other end, and the fans would cheer because, like, <laughs> they don't know the rules. Yeah. So they didn't understand, like, offsides or icing or anything like that. So that's been a fun component to to be a part of as well as educating a non-traditional hockey market, I guess, in yeah. the sport. Yeah. How was that, playing in front of all those fans? Because girls don't get that too often where it's, like, a packed stadium. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I mean, I feel like I always play better in front of a crowd, especially when they're heckling. <laughs> I love the fans heckle. But yeah, it's it's definitely a really cool atmosphere, and our rink does a really good job. You know, there's like a lit. It's very professionally done. There's a laser light show. We've got yeah. like intermission entertainment, like all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, it's it's a great atmosphere. It really is. That's unbelievable. It really, that's like. So nice because I went to watch, I watched one of the Boston Blade games and, you know, it was treated the same as I've seen like club hockey in California be treated. And I've gone and watched Northeastern play and it's just like a couple of the family members and stuff. So to hear that you guys have like a whole like light show and like fans, I think is unreal. And I hope that's the way that it starts to go for all the teams out here too. I don't even know how to like move it into that direction. Yeah, I think, again, like, you know, our organization is a really good job of, of keeping professional and, and making it seem really legit. And um, I think, again, like, we could be the shining star of what professional hockey should look like for women or professional sports in general. Yeah. When you, you know, put the effort into it to to really sell it to the fans, I think, you know, it could be something huge. And I think, you know, the PWHPA is doing a great job and they're trying to really – push the needle forward for for things like that you mm-hmm. know it's not enough to just put a product on the ice you really have to make it big and and treat the athletes and and the fans with the level of professionalism that you would you would with the men's side so yeah hopefully it starts to kind of move in that direction but you know baby steps baby steps yeah definitely so what draws you to wanting to play in australia just the fact that it's still a developing thing out there? Yeah, I think so. I think that it's just such a new sport. Australia and the Philippines, you know, I've been working with a couple of players on the Philippine national team, and um, I just really like the, like, the non-traditional markets because, again, I think there is potential there. Uh-huh. I think if you, you know, you, if you give them the opportunity to do something, you know, people will generally surprise you. And, yeah, I think Australia's got a lot of potential. I think New Zealand's got a lot of potential. Obviously, their numbers are smaller. But they've got a pretty avid hockey market down there, you know. So it, it would be fun to go down. You know, you get to live in Australia, which is would be never unreal. a bad thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then grow the sport down there, which I think would be great. Yeah. What advice would you give to younger players that want to follow a similar path as you? I don't know if they want to follow my path. <laughs> I took a pretty convoluted route to, to get to where I am. Um, I would honestly say, I think, from all the experiences that I've had, is that you have to genuinely believe in yourself and where you want to go. Because hockey is not, hockey is not a world where, it's not a world where if you give up at the first sign of somebody saying no, will you succeed? Because every coach, every GM, every whatever sees the game and sees people in a different light, and you just really need to find the right fit for you. And you need to find people that see your value, but no one's going to see your value until you figure out what that is. So for me, you know, I've always worked on the premise that Potential is everything. You know, if you can find somebody's potential and you can give them the ability to see it themselves, they're going to, like I said, they're going to surprise you. And so that's kind of how I've attacked every stage of my career, um, from playing to coaching back to playing again. It's just really sticking to what I'm good at. 
Mm -hmm. And hopefully somebody out there also appreciates that at some point. And do you have to remind your players of that sometimes? That, like, you have potential. It might not have shown in this game, but it's there. Oh, 100%. I think that's, like, a big thing, especially in the college recruiting process where it's, like, oh, you know, so-and-so team hasn't reached out to me or so-and-so team doesn't like me or blah, 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 whatever. And it's, like, okay, yeah, but do you want to – Go to the team. Do you want to go and play on that team anyways? If they don't like the kind of player that you are, or they don't like the kind of player that you could become, do you want to go places where you're valued? And that's why I chose Cornell. Like, coach made me feel like I was important and that I mattered, and that that made all the difference for me. So I think that's you know you can go to a tryout and you don't make a team, and it's like oh I suck. And it was like well no, yes you have to get better. But maybe you just aren't what that coach is looking for. But if you keep, you know, honing your skills and you keep, you know, trying to get better in all the areas that you're weak in, you'll find somebody that likes you. You know, the NHL, like, I think the Golden Knights are a great example. You have, you know, Jonathan Marcheseau on one of the teams. You know, he was a very average player on whatever team he was on before, and now he's a star. He's been given that opportunity to shine, and he's absolutely taken it and run with it. So I think it's just believing in who you are and and sticking to your guns and letting the chips fall as they as they do. I'm like fired up right now. <laughs> I feel like that was the best pregame speech right there. I'm like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That really is because I think it oh it gets so hard, especially when you get into those higher levels and stuff. That like you really have to have faith in yourself before anyone else puts faith in you because you do you get so many rejections well I think it's the thing too right it's I think the biggest thing is like would you rather make a team but have to sacrifice all of who you are and your morals and your being and change everything that you are to be on that team or would you rather not make the team but live with a peace of mind knowing that you've done everything that you possibly could have done you know and not sacrificed anything that you weren't super keen on sacrificing. You know, obviously there are things where you have to change a little bit. Like if, you know, you're going to go from a first-line role to a third-line role, like that is something that you're going to have to accept. But mm-hmm. if it's something along the lines of, like, we need to completely change who you are, then is it worth it to you? And I think some people get too caught up on results as opposed to process. Yeah. Is that the motto that you followed throughout your career so far? I think it took me a long time to figure that out because mm-hmm. I have always been a people pleaser and I've always have a, I have a very hard time with rejection in terms of like, you know, somebody doesn't like me. So it's, there's something wrong with me as opposed to being like, okay, I just, I'm just not that person's, you know, just not that person's favorite flavor kind of thing. And I didn't, I honestly still struggle with it, but I'm aware of it. And I think that's the biggest thing is you have to be aware of what is your trigger. And um, my sister actually told me this little adage, and I was like, oh, this is actually really good. But she was like, you could be the biggest, juiciest, most delicious peach in the entire world, and there are still going to be people that don't like peaches, right? So it is what it is, and, you know, I think you have to be accountable to yourself, and it's not ever going to be handed to you and yes things are going to be hard and people are going to say no and you're going to have to grow and all those sorts of things it's definitely on you but you also have to have that awareness where it's like you know what I've done everything that I can and it just didn't work out for me and you have to be okay with that definitely has there ever been a situation where you've been in that you're like okay I need to find a new coach or a new team to appreciate me or I need to adjust myself yes 100% there has been. And that is something that is, it's hard, especially in women's hockey when there's not a lot of opportunity, you know, where it's like you live in a little bit of fear where it's like, well, if I don't do this, then I might not ever, you know, play again or I might not have another chance or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, So I totally understand that. But at the same time, it's like, is that fear worth being miserable for and again some people it is and some people it isn't and for whatever your decision is it's totally up to you but again it's the awareness and the accountability that I think um, people need to consider when they're 
when they're in those situations. And from the coaching perspective, what's it like having to have those difficult conversations with these players sometimes? Yeah, I think, again, it's being able to communicate, right? Mm -hmm. Like, And not giving players, like, cookie-cutter responses where it's like, okay, like, coach, I want to play on the first line. All right, well, you know, you have to be a faster skater or you have to score more goals. That's not giving a player something to work on. That's giving them a bullshit answer and they're not going to get better. But if you can really have that conversation, which first entails creating a relationship with that player so that you can speak to them in an honest manner, where it's like, okay, listen, Kelsey, you know, you're not fast enough, but I need you to be, you know, more explosive in these areas. And if you have that explosive speed in six feet, then I can put you on, you know, I can put you on the penalty kill where you're going to get a little bit more ice time so that you can, because you can get to pucks. But giving them specific answers, not you're not fast enough mm-hmm. or you're not big enough or you need to get stronger in the off season. Because what is that going to do for a player? I've seen players kill themselves in the gym over the summer, get wicked strong, come back and still not play because that wasn't the right feedback, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when I have those conversations with my players, I try to be very specific with with what their flaws are and with what they have to do to get to where they want to go. But also telling them that even if they do those things, sometimes it still might not work out so that they just have to kind of, you know, they have realistic expectations. And then it's on them to decide. Yeah. When you were coaching at POE, was there ever a moment where a player was like, I want to play for this team, and you had to, like, readjust and be like, well, maybe this team would be better for you? Or Yes, I've had a lot of those conversations. <laughs> so there's, like, again, it's it's – I think – I think sometimes when you're younger, you want you make decisions that aren't necessarily the best for you, but they look the best. Mm-hmm. So I've had a couple kids, you know, that are like, oh, I want to play in the WCHA, for example. Like, I have to play in the WCHA because it's like, quote unquote, the best league. And you have to have those conversations where it's like, okay, realize that if you go there, you may play on the third or fourth line. You know, are you okay with that? Because your alternative is still playing Division One in a, in a different league where you may play on the first or second line, right? What What is it more important to you, playing in this league or playing more, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's up, to the, it's up to the player, obviously, to make the decision. They have to live with it, whatever decision they make. But it's giving them all the information and letting them sort of digest it. But yeah, there's definitely been times where kids have committed to schools where I'm just like, it's not going to work out for you, but, you know, good luck kind of thing when other opportunities were available where I think they would have had more success. Gotcha. Yeah. But it's all just like an ego thing. Like, I want to play at this school because it's in this league and it has that name. Yeah, and I can put it on Instagram and all my friends will be jealous. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's such a hard thing. And, And, um... We always talk about that with juniors mostly because all these kids want to play in like the NA and like these yeah, players, the like, yeah. yeah. And it's like, well, you might play there, but you won't really play there. Your name will be on the roster. And how do you get recruited to schools if you get one shift a game? Right, exactly. So it's like making those decisions based on the goals you want to accomplish, right? Like. Do you want your college career to just be fun and you're at a big school and, you know, they've got a great football program and blah, 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 all this stuff? Then okay, that's totally fine. Absolutely, make that decision. But if you want to play hockey and you want to develop and, you know, you want to get better for whatever after, you know, maybe you need to go to a different school where your development is going to be more a priority. And that's that's a hard, you know what, honestly, that is a hard decision to make. I And I totally empathize, empathize with a lot of those kids, so. Definitely. And how did you make your decision to go to Cornell, especially since you said that you were being recruited by some other places also? Um, I knew I wanted to go Ivy for, I have no idea what reason. I honestly (laughs) could not answer you um, as to why I had that in my head. I was like, Ivy is the best education. Like, that's where I want to go. I think, yeah, I think it was a little bit ego in terms of the education side of it. 
I think if I were to do it over again, I would... Well, and I think the thing, too, is, like, when I played, it, you had to get an education. It wasn't like you were playing hockey to go play pro. You were playing hockey to get into a good school. Whereas now you can, you know, honestly, like, the bachelor's degree, like, you can kind of get that wherever. Mm-hmm. Everyone kind of has one now. So I think kids these days, honestly, can go to, to university for the experience and to play hockey and then, you know, get get you know, whatever degree they want after. So I would have explored, I think if I were to do it now, I would explore my options a little bit more and see what program fits what goals that I have, you know, in terms of development or where I want to play or what I want to do and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, I I, I can't say I have any to watch school other than coach. He was honestly the number one seller for me. It was the number one what for you? He was the number one seller for me. Like, that is the legitimately that is the reason that I chose to go to Cornell was because of my coach and is your was your coach Spencer the guy that you were talking no. about before no coach Doug there he's at Cornell still okay gotcha yeah so who's Spencer the one that you were calling your mentor is he who you coached at POE with at first or yeah so I coached with Scott Spencer he's the he was the first guy that gave me a chance to coach professionally like as, as my career and so I worked with him at Pursuit of Excellence for three years and then another three at Lindenwood. Okay, so that's how you made the transition to Lindenwood? Yeah. And you weren't nervous about going from having this head coaching spot to being an assistant again? No, not at all. I think I, for me, it's, again, like, I, I don't... I think I do a good job of embracing whatever role that I'm given and mm-hmm. like trying to learn as much as possible all the time in whatever role. So I think, again, you know, going from head coaching in pursuit of excellence to assistant coaching at an NCAA school makes sense to me. Like <laughs> I still have so much I need to learn at the college level that I, you know, that I didn't know at the time. So yeah, it was, it was a very easy and smooth transition. How odd is it for you to go from the player's side to the coach's side? Is there so much more of the game that's kind of opened up and now you're like, oh, I see why this is happening and that's happening from the different perspectives? 100%. 1,000%. I think, again, like, I wish every player could, like, legitimately coach at a, like, a high level before they played college because they would see the game entirely different. Like, it's... It's night and day. You know, when you play, like, you're just playing and you're... I don't know if you're fully understanding, like, risk-reward and all those sorts of things. I think some of the best players do, and I think players are starting to kind of get there. But from a coach's perspective, like, holy man, there's so many things to consider. Like, so much. And and it's not even just from a tactical perspective. It's It's person management. It's game management. It's, you know, it's zone management even. You know, like, who do I put out for a face-off? Who do I um, – who are we matching up against the other team? from a tactical perspective, like, this kid can't play against that that player because that player, you know, does something really well that exposes this kid, or there's just so many different layers to think about, but it's it's super fun. <laughs> was it hard for you to get your foot in the door for a coaching gig? Again, I think I was super fortunate that Scott really gave me an opportunity, and he really taught me about how to be a coach and how to work hard and um, and also how to, like, manage your work to rest Mm -hmm. and like being able to take time off and those sorts of things but getting my foot in the door like he opened up the door for me at pursuit of excellence you know he brought me into the ncaa world when um, he got his opportunity there and i think with that he opened up so many other connections and networks that i you know developed through through all those years of coaching and so i think I had a easier go at it, but we'll see, I guess, when I try to jump back in. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like – I I don't know. I feel like playing professional in your resume, you'll have no problem jumping back into it. Uh, we'll see, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Especially if you're creating your own program, then you don't really have to worry about who's going to hire you. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's – it'll be interesting to see what happens once I'm done here, I think. Yeah makes me a little bit nervous sometimes. I'm sure it'll all work out. It seems that you have a very positive attitude, so even if it is a little bumpy at first. Yeah, we'll yeah. see. Again, it's uh, <laughs> trying to 
find your value, right? Definitely. Well, thank you for coming on. Do you have anything else that you want to share? No. I think, you know, if whoever's listening to this is in an area where the PWHA or PWHPA plays, the best way to support women's hockey is to go watch their games, get their merchandise, that kind of stuff. And yeah, anybody ever want to chat or have questions, you know, they can reach out to me on Instagram and yeah, pretty open to communicate with whomever. So perfect. I love it. And we'll tag you on our Instagram and everything. So they'll be able to find you. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're super welcome. Hopefully (laughs) see you again next summer in Tahoe. Definitely. All right. Awesome. (laughs) Have a good one. You too. Bye. All right. Bye.